Thanks for listening to the Journey Christian Church podcast. We're on a mission to make disciples who love God, love people, and serve the world. Our prayer is that this message encourages you today. And remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome, nobody's perfect, and through Jesus, anything is possible. Well, let me ask you as we kind of kick this series off, what comes to mind when you hear the phrase, happy hour? You say, oh, pastor, we're going to go there? We're going to go there. For some of us, we immediately think of discounted drinks or appetizers at our favorite restaurants and bars. For me personally, I think of steak and shakes, half-priced milkshakes from 2 p.m. to 4 p.m. Now, full disclosure, I've never been to steak and shakes happy hour for a half-priced milkshake. But there is something about it that comforts me knowing that I could go get one if I ever wanted to. I want to live in a world where there's milkshakes like that. Whatever you thought of when you hear the words happy hour, let me tell you what nobody thought of. An hour-long worship service at a church. Why is that? The way we portray our faith reflects the portrait we have of God. Let me say that one more time. The way we portray our faith reflects the portrait that we have of God. The signals we give off to people about what our faith is are simply a reflection that grow out of who we think God is. And this is the point that Jesus is trying to make when he told the greatest story ever, the parable of the prodigals in Luke 15. Countless sermons, numerous books have been written about just this one story, but before you can appreciate that story, you have to understand the backstory. And to do that, we need to start at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. So I urge you to open up your Bibles or your Bible app or follow along on the screen as we read verse 1. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Let me tell you a little bit about these two very different groups that are gathered here to hear Jesus. Tax collectors were some of the most despised people in ancient Israel. To become a tax collector meant you won the bid from that particular region to collect taxes from your own people on behalf of, uh, of an oppressive empire, the Romans, that everyone in your country hated. To make matters worse, tax collectors weren't limited to collecting the taxes their Roman overlords demanded. They could charge whatever they wanted above that amount and keep the rest for themselves. A tax collector was considered the lowest of low lives among Jewish people. And yet there was something about Jesus 
that drew them to him. This is not the first time we read about tax collectors hanging around Jesus. Luke chapter 5, same gospel, tells us about Levi or Matthew leaving his tax toll booth to follow Jesus and then throwing a lavish party for his tax collecting colleagues to come and meet Jesus and ride along there with them. We're the second group mentioned here in Luke 15, doing what they did best, questioning Jesus' motives and methods. Look at Luke 5, chapter uh, chapter 5, verses 29 and 30. Then Levi, Matthew, held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? So what we read about in the opening of Luke 15 is not a new situation. This has been a criticism aimed at Jesus for a while, but it seems to be growing in intensity and implications. The second group around Jesus that we're told about in Luke 15 is the Pharisees. Who are they? Well, the Pharisees were a small but highly influential special interest group on first century religious and political life within Judaism. They are either collectively or as individually mentioned 98 times in the New Testament, mainly in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The root meaning of the word Pharisee is uncertain, but it is related to the Hebrew word that means separate or detached, which is exactly the posture they portray nearly every time they're mentioned. They took great pride on distancing themselves from others who didn't share their interpretation of the Jewish law or their religious purity practices or their extremist political views. The Pharisees took it upon themselves to designate who was in and who was out when it came to the kingdom of God. They considered themselves the self-appointed guardians of all things related to God, and they created uh, an us versus them mentality, calling those who had disagreed with them outsiders while relishing in their elite status as insiders with God. And over time, they created carefully crafted categories that Jesus came to confront and collapse. And one of the categories they created was called sinners, which included, but were not limited to, lepers, paralytics, tax collectors, and prostitutes. The outsider status that they conferred upon these groups legitimized in their twisted way of thinking the withholding of compassion, mercy, and forgiveness when they were the ones who needed it most. And this put Jesus at odds with the Pharisees early and often. After Jesus touches a leper to heal him on the Sabbath, the Pharisees start shadowing Jesus. And their growing opposition is noted by Luke several times. And that comprises the backstory for Jesus' most famous story. And notice... I love this. Notice the particular phrase Luke used to describe what the Pharisees were doing around Jesus. Take a look at it. 
the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, everybody say that, muttered. The word translated muttered here is a fascinating word. It's what linguists call an onomatopoeia word, onomatopoeia, meaning it is a word that phonetically imitates, resembles, or suggests the sound that it describes. Think of the words oink, meow, roar, or chirp. Those words sound like what they're describing. Likewise, the word muttered or sometimes translated murmured sounds like what they were doing. I think of, I'm thinking of one of those toddler animal spin toys. The pig goes, oink. The cat goes, meow. The lion goes, roar. And the Pharisees go, mutter, murmur, mutter, murmur, mutter, murmur, mutter, murmur. Why are the Pharisees muttering and murmuring? This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. You understand they did not intend that as a compliment. There's a classic old Christian hymn titled, Jesus, What a Friend of Sinners, written in 1910, based on this verse. Let me assure you, the Pharisees did not mean for this to become a song lyric. They didn't like the company Jesus kept. His known associates were not known as very reputable people. These are not the people any respectable rabbi, let alone one claiming to be Messiah, should be associating with. Now, there were many baseless accusations that the Pharisees used to bring charges against Jesus. In fact, at Jesus' trial, they couldn't even pay false witnesses to come up with a consistent story that would stick. But there were two charges against Jesus that had some substance to them. One is he didn't keep the Sabbath like the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did. Now, that wasn't true. He just didn't keep the Sabbath in the legalistic way that the Pharisees did. But the charge was true that he didn't keep the Sabbath the way his critics did. And secondly, he did keep company with people that his critics didn't. This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. By the way, the words welcomes and eats are present tense verbs, which indicates this was not an isolated incident, but it was Jesus' ongoing practice and it was the Pharisees' ongoing problem. Jesus never denied that criticism. And to the Pharisees, it was a credibility-destroying accusation. And they kept asking this question. Why does Jesus party with the wrong people? Why does Jesus party with the wrong people? Let me ask you, have you ever been offended by another person's or group's celebration? I remember after the terrorist attacks of 911, it killed over 3,000 of our citizens in one day, watching people celebrating in countries that hate America by firing off rifles and dancing in the streets. Man, that really angered me. 
Or maybe on a less dramatic scale, when you see a defensive lineman who has just sacked the quarterback in a football game, and it appears the quarterback is seriously hurt, yet the lineman is dancing and prancing around, it just kind of seems out of place. Now, this is the place in the message that I was going to talk about what used to be my favorite time of the sports calendar, March Madness. And I was going to tell you how inappropriate I thought Duke's celebration was after Christian Leitner hit that awful game-winning shot against my Kentucky Wildcats in 1992. But then Thursday night happened. And I watched an underdog basketball team that sounds more like a church than a college beat a blue blood, blue blood program. And suddenly March sadness turned in, March madness turned into March sadness. Yeah, I got ahead of my line. And I have to say, some of the texts I received from some of my so-called friends were highly inappropriate. They took way too much glee in my misery. This is a little like how the Pharisees felt whenever they saw Jesus eating with known and notorious sinners. There are some parties, they thought, that just should never happen. But you see, they were being consistent with their portrait of God. They understood the way they understood God meant that the invitation list to a party with anyone claiming association with God should be very, very small, and they should be in charge of the invitations. But Jesus paints a very different portrait in Luke 15. So what do you do when people are muttering and murmuring about you? Well, Jesus told stories. In fact, in Luke 15, Jesus told three stories, one right after the other, in response to their charge. The first story is one that all the men in the audience could relate to. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, notice what he does. He, what? Joyfully puts it on his shoulders and goes home. And then he calls his friends and neighbors together and he says, what? Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you in the same way, there will be more, what? rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. It's hard for us to appreciate the story because we don't understand the culture. In those days, you didn't primarily keep sheep for meat. You kept them primarily for their wool, which meant you had them for a long time. Kenneth Bailey says that the average Jewish landowner might have between 5 and 15 sheep <clears throat> So to have a flock of a hundred sheep meant it was most likely the collective flocks of an entire village. A team of shepherds would rotate shifts to watch the flock, and that's exactly what we read about on the night Jesus was born. And if you're watching somebody else's sheep, losing one of them would be considered the ultimate dereliction of duty in the eyes of the community. And as Jesus tells the story, you can picture two guys in the back named Benjamin and Joseph nodding their heads because they remember the night their friend Ephraim lost one of the rams of the flock. They were planning on breeding that ram with the rest of the flock in the fall so they'd have a lot more lambs in the spring. And Ephraim went out and he went looking for that ram all night long and he finally found it and he carried it home. And when he did, they threw a big old party in that village. And Benjamin and Joseph are nodding their head because they were at that party and they remember the joy and the celebration that took place. 
And then Jesus told a story all the women in the audience could relate to. Or suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Doesn't she light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says what? Rejoice with me. I found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you what? There is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, we won't appreciate the story if we don't understand the background. This isn't just a quarter that fell out of her coin purse. In that time, a woman who was married would have a necklace of 10 coins. It was a symbol. She was a wife. It was part of her identity. Ladies, it would be like you losing your wedding band or a valuable stone out of your engagement ring. That actually happened to my wife once. When that happens, you turn the house upside down looking for that ring or stone. That's why this woman was so intent on finding this lost coin. And as Jesus is telling the story, once again, you picture two women in the back named Rachel and Rebecca nodding their heads and whispering to each other, do you remember when Miriam lost one of her coins? Remember the argument that she had with her husband Jacob? Remember when she finally found her lost coin? She invited us over to her house and we had a big old party that day. We were so happy for her. You see, our problem is we read these stories with our head and these stories don't make sense from the head. If you're an accountant, you would never tell a shepherd to leave 99 sheep out in the open field to go find one stray. That's just a 1% loss. You're going to more than make up for that the next springs when the lambs give birth. If you're an accountant and this client loses one coin, they say, well, you still have nine. We'll invest the nine at a good rate of return, and we'll, we'll more than make up for that lost coin. But you don't read these stories with the head. You read them with the heart. Let me ask you, have you ever lost something that had a value that far exceeded what it actually cost? Did you ever get it back? How did you feel? Several years ago, I was taking a walk in my neighborhood. And I spotted something that looked like a wallet in the middle of the road. And I went over and picked it up. And sure enough, it was a wallet full of cash and credit cards. And I found a driver's license and saw a name and an address that just so happened to be right around the corner from my house. So I walked down to that house and I started to walk up the driveway. And a very large man was on the phone pacing back and forth in the driveway, having what sounded like a very distressed conversation. When he saw me... I simply held up his wallet and I said, is this yours? He dropped that phone. He came running toward me. I didn't know if he's going to hug me or slug me. <laughs> but as he rushed toward me, he gave me a big old bear hug and he said, thank you, sir. Thank you so much. Can I give you something for finding this for me? Of course, I refused, but I bet he would have invited me in. We would have had a little celebration if I wanted to. It had been happy hour at his house, right? <laughs> Not many days after that, Melinda and I were with some longtime friends at Disney's Hollywood studio. Our friend's daughter went to the bathroom, and when she came out, she looked horrified. And she told her parents she'd lost her new iPhone. 
that they had just recently bought her and everyone felt so awful for her. But just a few minutes later, a woman walks up and saw us talking with concerned looks on our faces and she held up a phone and she said, does this phone belong to one of you? The look of relief and joy that immediately came into our friends and their daughter's face was unforgettable. Listen, if you lose your wallet or your phone, you're deeply troubled and you go to great lengths to get them back. And if you do, you're more than just relieved. You're rejoicing. A story came out of Tel Aviv, Israel in the late 2000s of a woman who noticed that her mother was sleeping on a very lumpy old mattress. The daughter thought she would surprise her mom when she was out of town by buying her an expensive new mattress and hauling the old mattress to the curb to be taken to the dump. So the mom comes home after a trip. She gets in her bed. It didn't feel the same. She pulled the sheets back to discover her old mattress had been replaced, and she immediately begins to scream and wail. You see, what the daughter didn't know is mom didn't trust banks, and that over the years, she'd stashed over a million dollars in her old mattress. Let me ask you, what do you think that mother and daughter spent the day doing? They went to dumps all over Tel Aviv, desperately looking for the missing million-dollar mattress. And Jesus is saying, listen, because you have the picture of God that you have, you think these people are filthy and dirty, and they just need to be thrown out. But God says they're valuable to him because they're made in his image, and they must be found. And when they're recovered safely, a great party in heaven breaks out spontaneously. And then Jesus tells one more story that adds a final startling brushstroke to the portrait of God he came to reveal. Now, we're going to spend the next three weeks studying this story in depth. It's going to lead us up to Easter. I want to give you just a quick flyover of its content and main characters. This is a story about a father who has two sons. It is a mistake to call this parable the parable of the prodigal son, singular. We'll see why over the next few weeks. So you join us. The younger son is a rebellious, overconfident young man who demanded total freedom from the restrictions of his home. And so one day he says to his dad, Dad, I've noticed that you're still breathing, which means I'm not getting my inheritance yet. I'm tired of waiting on you to die, old man. I want what I got coming to me now. Jesus' listeners could hardly believe their ears to hear such a disrespectful, disgraceful statement coming from a son to his dad. A traditional Middle Eastern father would be expected to respond to such a request by driving the son out of the family with verbal, if not physical, blows. But this father doesn't do anything like that. No, the father's response is even more startling than the son's request. Jesus said simply, he divided his property between them. Like most people in the world, the bulk of this man's wealth came from real estate. This father was a landowner who probably received his land from his father, who received it from his father, and so on. This property had probably been in his family for generations. So when it says he divided his property between them, the father was literally tearing his financial world apart. It meant he had to draw up a new deed that gave the older son two-thirds of the estate, which was the practice of that day, 
And to the younger one, he gave one third. And do you know what that no account, ungrateful, youngest boy did with it? He sold it because you can't buy beer and chase women with a deed. And Jesus' listeners would have been horrified at what they're hearing. Oh, no, he didn't. Oh, yes, he did. He sold the land to get cash, and he headed off to what Jesus describes as a far country, far away from his father and his older brother. And it's not hard to imagine what he did in that far country. Melinda and I have visited the country of Israel twice. And one of the trips, they took us to a Gentile city called Beth Shan. And that city sat right on the border of ancient Israel, just across the Jordan River, right on the east side of the Jordan River. Take a look at this picture. We toured this massive amphitheater and the enormous archaeological site surrounding it. This former Roman metropolis was home to 30,000 to 40,000 citizens, and it covered approximately 370 acres. Our guide told us that this ancient city was basically a first century version of Las Vegas. In fact, there was a sign they dug up that read this, what happens in Bethshan stays in Bethshan. <laughs> Perhaps this was the place that the prodigal son, younger son, headed. Jesus simply says he squandered his wealth in wild living. The people hearing this story are thinking, that is the most worthless son I've ever heard of. Good riddance to him. No father deserves a boy like that. But the father who could not make that boy stay could not let that boy go. And so every night, he'd stand on the balcony of his house and he looked southward down that road where he had last seen his beloved son disappear over the horizon and as he looked, he longed. And then one evening, right before dusk, he sees a familiar figure walking toward him. Do you know everybody has a distinct way of walking? Nobody walks exactly the way you do. We all have a discernible stride that distinguishes us from everyone else. And when you see someone walking that you know well, you can tell who it is. Even if you can't see their face. And the father instantly recognized that familiar stride. Even though the steps were a little slower and the frame was a little more slouched. And when he had last seen it, the boy is dirty, he smells, and he's absolutely broke and broken, but he's headed back home. And the people listening to Jesus' story, they can't stand it anymore. What is this father going to do with this ungrateful, disrespectful, irreverent son who wants to return? Well, let's just let Jesus tell it. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him, and he kissed him. 
And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe, put it on him. Put a ring on his finger, sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Nobody had ever painted a portrait of God like that. And though many of us have heard this story many, many times, I would contend most of us still do not have a picture of God like that. And Jesus was saying to his listeners then, and he's saying to his listeners now, if you can't see God right, you'll never see people right. Let's do a quick summary of the most prominent themes that emerge from these three stories as we wrap up. Number one, every story starts with a separation. Something of value separated from someone to whom it belongs. And Jesus uses the same word in each story to describe the missing valuable. And it's simply the word lost. It's a strong word that Jesus uses. It's the same word the disciples used when they were in a storm at sea. And Jesus was sleeping in the boat. And they wake him up and they said, Lord, don't you care that we perish or are going to be lost? It's the same word Peter uses in his second New Testament letter. When he writes, God's not willing that any should be lost or perish. It's a scary, sobering word, and Jesus used it all the time. So later on, in the same gospel, another tax collector, in fact, the chief tax collector of the whole region, who would have been the wealthiest and most hated of them all, a short man, a wee little man named Zacchaeus, he wants to meet Jesus. And true to his messianic vision, Jesus goes to the house of Zacchaeus, and he eats with him, and he tells him salvation has come to this house. And true to their misaligned view, the Pharisees and teachers of the law, look at this, I love this, they began to what? That's their sound, right? They began to mutter, he's gone to the, be the guest of a sinner. There he goes again, off partying with sinners. And one more time, Jesus defines his mission by telling them, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the what? Say it one more time. Lost. Lost. You know, I find it very interesting that in the church today, we call people who are spiritually interested but not yet committed to following Jesus, seekers. It's a very common term, seekers. But Jesus repeatedly tells us and shows us that God is the real seeker in the scriptures. He seeks and saves his lost creation. So each story tells about the separation that lostness brings. Number two, every story tells about a rescue, recovery, rejoicing party to restore that which was lost. The lost sheep, after an extensive search, is recovered. The lost coin, after a thorough house clean, is found. And the lost son, after spending and being spent in the far country, he comes back home. But Jesus adds a detail to the third story that is easy for us to miss, would be, but it would be considered scandalous to his first century listeners. Look at what Jesus said. The father ran to his son. Older Jewish men wore robes. Let me ask you, how do you run in a robe? Well, you have to hike it up above your knees. That didn't happen in that culture. It was considered vulgar and disgraceful for a man over 30 to show his knees in public. And actually, that's not a bad rule today. 
We should maybe want to reinstitute that one. Listen, the only way that a father could run to that boy was to look as undignified as that boy did, to take the shame of the boy onto himself. And it is in this detail of this story that we see another story. If the father in this story represents God the Father in heaven, and he does, then this is the only time in Scripture where God is pictured as being in a hurry. He is fast to forgive us, and he runs to reconcile with us. No Pharisee ever pictured God like that. If they had, they would have joined the party. And that's the third theme. Every story ends with a party, and everybody's happy, except the older brother and the fatty calf. The older brother shows up at the house after a long day of working in the father's fields and he hears music and he sees dancing and he finds out it's for his lost little brother who has returned and he gets very angry. And he says, we shouldn't be having a party for this guy. He disrespects dad. He blows his inheritance on God knows what. And then when he runs out of money and out of his low-life friends, he drags his sorry self back home, and we're having a party for him? Are you kidding me? But to the father, no party was no option. Look at what he says to his older son in verse 32. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. That phrase, we had to celebrate and be glad. That's a strong phrase. By the way, it's the same word Jesus used when he said this, the son of man must, he must suffer many things. He must be killed and after three days rise again. It's the same word Jesus used after his resurrection when he said to two discouraged disciples, did not the Messiah have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? Listen, friends, there aren't many things God must do, but he must be faithful. He cannot break a promise. He must be truthful. He cannot tell a lie. And he must be joyful because he cannot deny his character. When one of his lost kids repents and returns home, God cannot not celebrate. We had to celebrate and be glad. Let me tell you about a young man named Austin who's recently started attending worship gatherings at our Apopka campus. Just a few weeks ago, Austin had been hanging out with some young adults from our church over the past several months, but he told them, in no uncertain terms, he had no interest in attending worship. But on the first week of our recently completed Journey to Hope series on mental health, Austin surprisingly showed up. His friends couldn't believe it. Austin came up to me after that message, and he said, I can't think of a better Sunday than for me to come to church for the first time than this one. Austin continued attending over the next few Sundays. And then on Thursday night, March 10th, 
Austin went all in on Jesus by going all under in Christian baptism. And three of the guys who'd been influential in Austin's decision, Tim, Anthony, and Caleb, helped baptize him. Over 30, listen, over 30 young adults were in the room and we can't duplicate what happened, but I want you to watch just a very short clip and listen to the excitement in the room that night. Friends, when people who've been far from God start heading home, we ought to be the first to run to them and greet them and celebrate them. Because Jesus said, that's that's what's going on in heaven. And listen, didn't Jesus tell us to pray? Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So you want to start a party in heaven? Repent. That sounds strange, doesn't it? Now, we've all seen people repent after a party. Some of you may be doing that today. But the Bible tells us the kingdom of God operates just the opposite. You repent before the party starts. You see, listen. We don't turn to Jesus to terminate the celebration. We turn to Jesus to initiate the greatest celebration you can imagine. We don't go to the party and then look for Jesus. We come to Jesus and the party finds us. Because no party is no option to the Father who is fast to forgive and who runs to reconcile. Amen? Bow your heads with me. Lake County, online. So, Father, we thank you for these great stories, these treasures of the gospel. And I pray, God, even though there may be some people in Lake County, online, here in Apopka, they think they know this story. I thought for many years I knew this story. I pray, God, over these next few weeks, you will just give a new revelation. You'll give a new insight into what you really intended to say, Jesus. And I pray all of us would be challenged. Whether we stray or whether we stay, that there is something the Father wants to say to each of us. And there's something the Father offers to each of us. So I pray, Father, would you just work in this new message through your words. Thank you for meeting us here today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you like this podcast, we post a new message every week. So make sure to click that follow button and share it with your friends. Remember, Journey is a place where everybody's welcome. Nobody's perfect, 
and through Jesus, anything is possible.